Isaiah 55 says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. He says later, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord might have compassion on him. May he turn to God, for, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Father in heaven, we, we lift you up and we say that the appetite of our hearts, the appetite of our will has gone astray this week, that there are times throughout this week where we have, we have gone after other things, other things to fill up our need, that there is an undeniable need for, for Jesus and Him alone, that there is only one God who can abundantly pardon and yet we have run to other gods, we have run to other things. And so Lord, we come together in, amidst, in the midst of all the, the chaos of a week, we come together with one voice and we say that we have come to you to receive from you, to hear you, to eat your food that you provide your people. And so Lord, as we've been singing these wonderful things about you as our Redeemer and the wonderful assurance that comes in knowing Jesus, and as we declare with our, our lips, but even more with our hearts, that you are our Lord, you are our God, we respond and say that we have come now to hear. We have come now to eat. So, Father, I pray for the preaching of your word. Please open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things here. I pray that you would impart wisdom to the simple here that we would fall in love with you even more here. That the glory of Jesus Christ would be the only thing left to think about. And that it would, it would cause a craving inside of us for you. Grow your people. Grow us to, to be satisfied in you alone. Speak now, Lord. You have our attention. Prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Ruth chapter 4 is where we are today. Uh, we've been walking through, really quickly, uh, the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters, therefore it only gets four Sundays. And so here we are at the very end of, of the book of Ruth. If you're not sure where Ruth is, that's okay. There's a Bible somewhere close to you, and I want you to, which I want you to do. We're going to be in the text a ton, so I need you to be looking at it with us. So grab that Bible that's close by. Open to the second or third page, and you'll see the table of contents, and look for Ruth. It's, I think it's like the seventh, maybe the eighth book in there, and let's, let's open up Ruth together. We're going to be in uh, chapter four. Their conversation was playing through her mind over and over and over again. Remember where we are in the story. It was only a few hours ago that she had risked it all, and it was so real. And it was so vivid that night. Just moments before, she had offered herself as his wife. Now, she was an extremely humble woman. But weak, 
No way. No way. See, the strongest of women are those whose humility breaks forth into courage. Ruth, this young woman Ruth, personified Proverbs 31. A woman far more precious than jewels. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, well, she's to be praised. And think about this man. In the days when every man did what was right in his own eyes, Boaz had his eyes fixed on God. He was a blessed man whose delight was in the law of the Lord. He was like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. In all that he did, he prospered. He was like the psalmist who said, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I am wiser than all of my enemies because I keep your commandments. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. See, Boaz is a wise man of the narrow road, a God-fearing man. In fact, he's such a God-fearing man. He is so law-loving that we're in trouble, aren't we? You remember where we are in the story? Ruth's mind is racing right now at the beginning of Ruth chapter 4 because why? Well, there's a glitch. There's a glitch in the plan. Boaz himself has thrown in a wrench that threatens to derail the entire story. Do you remember what it is? Ruth chapter 3, verse 12. Right after uh, Ruth says, hey, spread your wings over me. Basically, will you marry me? This is Boaz's response. And man, you wonder if he's missing some marbles. He says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer yet. There is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. Boaz is saying, everything you're doing, Ruth, is kind. Everything you're doing is beautiful. But there's someone else. And he has first rights to you. And as the audience were thinking, Boaz, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Here you have this young woman right in front of you, and she's proposing to you. What are you up to? But he knows. He knows. He can't help himself. See, righteousness, doing what is right, has its hold on his heart. For Boaz, it's more than just knowing the law. He loves the law. God's rules aren't a source of dread for Boaz. Obedience is desirable for him. So you're going to see this in your notes right away. I want this to be the backbone or, or the bedrock of our, our day. We're going to see what's happening in Ruth 4 because of this. When the grace of God has grabbed your heart, obedience isn't only a command, it's a craving. When the grace of God has grabbed your heart, obedience is not only a command, and truly it is, it's a craving. You want it. You can't, you can't help it. See, Boaz is compelled to do what is right, even if everything in the story is lost. Listen, if you've tasted the goodness of God, you will imitate the righteousness of God. You hear me? If you've tasted the goodness of God, you will imitate the righteousness of God. And so therefore, I want to say this as well. What's happening in the story? Why does Boaz have the guts to do this? This statement right here. 
God's sovereignty, his control over the world, God's sovereignty is the safety net for risky obedience. Does that make sense? God's sovereignty is the safety net for risky obedience. Now you're thinking, well, gosh, obedience is boring. That's not risky at all. But if you really know obedience, you know exactly how. It is very risky. It is hard work. It is very difficult at times. And it, is, it can be, in fact, be very risky. What do I mean? Well, will doing the right thing get in the way of something that you want? Yes. See, Boaz's integrity is hazardous to the plot of our story. Does pursuing God as the supreme ruler of our hearts sometimes even prevent worldly success? Yes. But if God is in control, and he certainly is, and I mean this, we should be able to relax and just obey. If God reigns, we can simply obey what he's asked us to do. Therefore, as Christians, we should never pass on integrity. Ever, never, ever pass on integrity. We should never pass on character, even when it looks like righteousness is going to hurt. Our response, God is sovereign. Even when it looks like obedience is going to cost everything, our response, God is sovereign. Tell you what, I'm weak on that. I need help. And so I join with that father in Mark chapter 9. I say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me understand how your sovereignty leads me to and keeps me safe in the midst of my obedience to you. Okay, so where are we? Where are we, where are we in the story? We find ourselves walking back with Ruth to Naomi's house early in the morning, right? Do you remember this? Boaz says, go. I'll fight for you, but, but go. And so she does. She, she heads back to Naomi's house, and she has to be asking what's, what's going to happen. Once again, uncertainty is consuming the story. But our minds can't stay there too long because the narrator rips us out of one scene and into another. Because just as Ruth is walking into her front door, Boaz, we find out, is walking out of his. And where is he going? He's going to the city gates. He's on his way to the city gates. Now, why? Why are you going to the city gates? Well, the, that, those city gates are the best place. They are Boaz's best chance to find this other guy, this other redeemer. Now, why do I say that? Because everyone in Bethlehem lives and sleeps where? Inside the gates. Make sense? Right? So there's, there's, a, there's a wall around this, this village, this small town of Bethlehem. Everyone lives, eats, and sleeps in here. But all of their fields are where? They're out there. They're outside the gate. So how do you get from inside Bethlehem to out there in the fields? You go, it all bottlenecks in one place, the city gates. You have to go through this place. So if Boaz wants to find this other redeemer, he, his best chance is going to be right there at the city gates. But that's not the only reason he goes there. Because another important reason why you want to go to the city gates as a citizen of an Israelite city is because that's where legal matters get done. That's where legal decisions are made. There are, at every little ancient town in ancient Israel, has ruling, local ruling elders, kind of like the fathers of that town, and those fellows are the ones who make the decisions on what happens. Decisions like family redemption, family line uh, redemption. Okay, so here we go. Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. 
So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So I, no, I have to stop. I have to interrupt the story. I just love this. The author is having a blast. <laughs> and behold, the Redeemer. Of course. Of course he's right there. Of course he shows up right there at that moment. Doesn't this feel familiar already? Two weeks ago, David preaching, just like Ruth just so happened to show up in Boaz's field not so long ago. Now this man just so happens to be passing by before Boaz can even warm up his seat. It's that fast. It's that quick. Do you sense it? Do you sense what's happening in the story? The very real and yet hidden hand of God moving his story, moving his redemption through. Never forget that this story isn't about Ruth. It's not about Boaz. It's not even about Naomi. It's about the glory of God. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. God is weaving something together. Now, we also have to pause here for a second because this, this language is kind of confusing, isn't it? What does it mean, what, redeem? You see this word redeem everywhere. What, what are we talking about when we say redeem? What does the word mean itself? Well, simply it means to buy back. It means to purchase or to recover something that has been lost. So I know there's a lot of context. It matters, it matters, it matters, I promise. Okay, so listen right here. In Israel and all over the Bible, we see that family, David talked about this last week, family and land are extremely important. Why? Well, God had promised Abraham, their forefather, the, like, the grandfather of Israel, so to speak, literally, actually, uh, the, the grandfather of Israel, uh, to give the people a land and to make them a great nation, right? So land and people, land and family. So then that worked itself down that, so that on an individual level, on a family level, that turned into two values that were extremely important in Israelite culture. Number one, one value is that each man's land was very important to his value and, and sustainability, to stay alive, to keep his family going. He needed land, okay? Second value is that it's essential for each man to bear a son to carry his name forward. Make sense? Okay, so then it makes sense, that also makes sense to say that these two things could come together quite often, that something like this could need, you need both land and family to come, to, to come together. And so what God has done is he's created two protective, redeeming measures to, to do this. Number one, if you became so poor, I mean, just dirt poor, that you had to or you were about to sell your land to survive, one of your relatives, a.k.a. a kinsman, could buy back or redeem your land so that even though you were too poor to keep it up, you could sell the use of your land to a relative who would then take care of you. Okay, that's the first thing that God put in the law, Leviticus chapter 25. And the second, this one's a little bit more serious, if you died without having a son, your closest relative, a brother, doesn't have to be a brother, most likely a brother, would come to your wife and provide a son to her. And that son would be considered not his son, but your son, even though you have already died. Your family line would therefore continue. So what happened in Israel and what's happening in Ruth 4 is that we see two things coming together, two needs for redemption, family line and land. You with me? Make sense? Okay. 
All right, so now let's get back to what Boaz is doing. Look at verse 3. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That's her husband. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So there it is. All this coming to a head, and then the guy takes it. says, I'll have it. The story's over. The man accepted the offer. Love has taken a back seat to legality. Romance is swallowed up by regulation. Just like that, it's over. But think for a minute. Think for just a second. Knowing what we know now about Israelite culture, what is missing from Boaz, Boaz's offer? Ruth. Ruth is missing. Hang on a second, Boaz. Chapter 3 was all about Ruth saying, save us, please. And he said, I'll do it if I can. I'll do it if I can. But then he comes before this kinsman and says nothing about Ruth. What is he up to? What is he doing? He's all, he's, Boaz has definitely presented the land part, but he has nothing to say about the family line part. He's left that out. Meanwhile, get into the head of this other guy. This other kinsman redeemer. He's just been offered land from an old widow without any children. This is perfect. This is perfect for him. If he redeems the land and then Naomi dies without an heir, the land is permanently his. If he just sticks it out for a few years, then he can forever annex this parcel of land for himself, for his own self. This is quite the financial offer being given. And so, of course, he accepts. In a day when every man did what was right in his own eyes, you better believe he took it. But my man Boaz. John Skinner might say that Boaz is bad, smart. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, Oh, well, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, uh, 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 Oh, it's funny, funny you say that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, oh, I can't. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, I can't do it. I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my, my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I, 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 can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. See, Boaz is awesome. He's brilliant. Do you see what he has done? Listen. He has actually played on the self-interest of this man. He has presented a very favorable financial offer, but he intentionally delayed one massive detail. The heart detail, which is you're going to have to love these two women at your own expense. You're going to have to be willing to give Ruth a son in Elimelech's name, not yours. Boaz is essentially asking, are you willing to redeem this situation? Are you willing to lose this property later? See, are you willing to sacrifice your time, your, your profits for these two women? You see, Boaz is eager to give it all for these women because what's going to happen 
What's going to happen if this guy takes on Ruth and gives her a son? He loses the property once that little guy is old enough to take care of it himself. He's basically giving a property. He's basically buying a property to give it right back. He's not interested in that. But Boaz is. He doesn't care what it will cost because that's just who he is. He is a man who loves kindness, a man whose pleasures are found at the living God's right hand. Boaz sits face to face with this man, and he leverages his own godly character to probe this man's heart. Boaz can see through him. And and listen, this is why we never get to know his name. You want to know why? Because it's not worth remembering. When self interest overrides selfless love, you'll end up being rather forgettable in the story of redemption. When self-interest overrides selfless love, you'll end up being rather forgettable in the story of redemption. And listen, that flies in the face of American culture. Um, An American culture that bolsters up and says, this is loving, but it's self-interest all the way down to the root. Boaz is giving up himself for these women at no personal reward. He's going to lose money, people. By taking on Naomi and Ruth, he is losing profits. Praise God for a selfless man. Make us, Lord, a selfless people. Okay, so there it is. This man, Boaz, he gives, uh, he, uh, this man gives Boaz his rights, and Boaz confirms it in front of the elders and all the other witnesses that are there. He buys the land, and he acquires Ruth. His aim is to honor the fallen men of the family, to give Elimelech an heir, to rescue Naomi, and to marry a foreign girl from the fields of Moab. What a beast. Can I just say that? What a beast. Okay, so the people, they take notice. They take notice of what's happening. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, so if you're watching a movie, if this is a movie, what's happening right now in verse 11 is all of a sudden the cameras are zooming out. It's getting really big, really big, really big. Now we're going to see the big picture of the story of Ruth, and we're going to see the big picture of the Bible as a whole, right here. These villagers are fully aware of what God has been doing behind the scenes. See, they immediately connect Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite, to Rachel and Leah, who we could call the mothers or the the matriarchs of Israel. Through these two women, Rachel and Leah, the whole nation of Israel got started through them. That's how the whole thing happened right there. And so these people in Ruth 4 are praying that she would have the same sort of legacy, that she would go down as one of the mighty mothers of Israel. The subtitle of the book of Ruth could easily be the story of the Moabite who turned matriarch. It's incredible. It's incredible the progression of title, the progression of value, outcast, foreigner, worthless, to she calls herself a servant in chapter 2. She calls herself a hand servant in chapter 3. She just got called a wife in chapter, or chapter 4, verse 10. And now she's beginning, being called a matriarch in the people of Israel in verse 11 and 12. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable progression of value that comes right there. Like her ancestor Tamar, maybe you're wondering who Tamar is. 
I would cautiously ask you to read Genesis 38. It's a little cheeky here and there. Uh, but Ruth, like Tamar, Ruth is a foreigner brought into the people of God through what? Suffering. These two women are plot, plotted out of history, and God is saying in his sovereignty and his historical uh, vision and value, he's saying, look at these two women together. Because God uses both of them to preserve and establish a family line. What God was doing some seven generations before with the man Judah and his, uh, his, who, the woman who becomes his wife, Tamar, he's doing it again now. God himself is redeeming a people. And he's doing it in the most scandalous of ways. Both Tamar and Ruth are Gentiles. And if you look in between Tamar and Ruth, you see Rahab in there. In the span of seven generations, you have three Gentile women who carry on the redemptive plan of God. That is unreal. But you have to ask. Again, we're in the bird's eye view. Now the movie's kind of getting to a close. We've got to look up and see what is God doing in the story of Ruth. And the, the way I'm asking this is, why? Why? Why did you choose Ruth, God? Why did you do it this way? And I think there are two answers. Two main answers. You see these in your notes. And the first one is this. It prepares us. God chose Ruth to prepare us for the new reality in Christ. God chose Ruth to prepare us for the new reality in Christ. See, before Jesus, before Jesus shows up later, God's family, who were they? Israel. Israel was God's own son, Exodus chapter 4. Israel was God's redemption plan. Israel was God's light to the nations. But in choosing Ruth, this Gentile woman, God gave us a picture of what was to come. That through Jesus, the perfect son of God, people like Ruth, foreigners and outcasts, can be welcomed into God's family, not because of race, not because of ritual, but because of faith. You see, God wanted, listen to me, God wanted Gentiles in the bloodlines of redemption because it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, we are all one in Christ. If that does not speak to today, I don't know what else does. Thus a person's eternal future is preserved not by land or family lines, but by faith in Christ. Who's your family? People who believe in Jesus. That's what Ruth is in the Bible to show us. And it's so easy to forget. Before Christ, before we have accepted Jesus Christ, we're not Boaz in this story. We're Ruth. We're Ruth. I am Ruth. I'm Tamar. I'm Rahab. It's easy to think we're Boaz, but no, we're the Moabite. If it weren't for what Christ had done, I'd still be building my Tower of Babel to the heavens condemned to hell. If it wasn't for what Jesus had done for us. Praise God for his story of welcoming the least of these into his family. As we close the book of Ruth, it should simply motivate us to say, what a beautiful Christ. That's what Ruth says. And if all of this is true, if all of this is true, then we also, I also just want to say this, it's Mother's Day and I, I, I want to add this in, I think it applies. God's family, this is in your notes, God's family grows not by bearing children, but by making disciples. God's family grows not by bearing children, but by making disciples. 
Now that Christ has come, being fruitful and multiplying is no longer talking about how many kids you can fit into your minivan. Because if that was the case, I'd throw down with any of y'all. Okay? It's not about how many kids you can get in your minivan. Rather, it's about your obedience to the Great Commission. You want to know if your legacy is going to continue forever? It doesn't matter whether or not you have a son. It's whether or not you're making sons of God in your life. Make disciples of Jesus and your legacy will continue. Okay, number two. Number one was it prepares us for the new reality in Christ. Why did God choose Ruth? Secondly, because God is the author of redemption. God is the author of redemption. God chose Ruth simply, most importantly, to showcase his own glory. I love this point. God is passionate for his own glory. For his own sake, God does the unthinkable to remind his people, you can't do what I do. You can't see what I see. See, I'm, I'm so grateful for this. One of the very real active struggles that I have is, is summarized in Romans 12.3. I think more highly of myself than I ought. See, in a world where man is almost always naturally inclined to worship his own abilities, God chooses a foreign girl from the fields of Moab to say to the universe, I am the author of this story. I get to write this story. God owns history. That is what Ruth tells us. Because we could never in a million years see what he was doing that day. Incredible. So that God chooses Ruth in order that we, with our feeble minds and feeble hearts, are left saying, how great is my God. How great is my God. Okay, so let's, let's finish the story. Boaz, of course, <laughs> he's not going home. Where's he going? He's going to get his girl. She's his now. She belongs to him now. And she becomes his wife. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. Nine months later, a baby boy comes along. But notice who gets all the attention. Verse 14. Then the women said to Ruth, no. The women said, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of, of life and a nourisher or provider of, old, of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi. Could you imagine this moment in this woman's heart? Then Naomi took the child and he laid him on her lap and, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's, it's Naomi's old heart that leaps for joy in these last few moments. Why? Finally restored. Finally restored. From famine came fullness. Underneath uncertainty was an unceasing divine kindness. See, Obed's name, kind of a strange name. I don't, wouldn't necessarily recommend it for your next kiddo. Obed, I mean, it's, it's not all that pleasant, but um, what does it mean? It means servant. It means to serve. It comes from the verb to serve. Obed means servant. And this boy would take care of Naomi in her last few years. See, Obed 
was a tangible reminder that God was faithful to her in her bitterness. That God was faithful to her in the sweetness. That God was faithful through every stream. He was faithful through every tear. He was faithful through every collapse. He was faithful through every death. He was faithful to provide every meal. He was faithful through every decision. He was faithful in every plan she made. Through it all, Obed sits on her lap to say, God is sovereign and God is faithful. Isn't that the story of the Bible? The goal of the book of Ruth is not to leave us thinking about how sweet Ruth is or how much of a hunk Boaz is or how sweet it was for Naomi. It's to scream at the glory of God. That's what the book of Ruth is about. He wants to draw our gaze up to Him. Up to Him. He is our attention. He deserves our attention. And that's what really gets us. That's what really gets us. Naomi never saw. She, she didn't get to see what would happen next. Which, by the way, as an aside, when you don't get to see what happens in the midst of your trials, that doesn't mean God's not here. You will never get to see all the things he's doing through you. It might be four generations later. Who knows? Stay faithful, church. Stay faithful. Naomi never got to see what would happen next. Listen, oh my gosh. Obed, her son, her servant, right, that's what his name is, was but a hint. By his name alone, he foreshadowed what was to come. Soon, Obed himself would be a grandparent, right? And he would be holding a baby boy on his lap, much like his grandmother, Naomi. But this baby boy on Obed's lap was a little bit different. He would become a king, after God's own heart, King David. And King David would have a son who would have a son who would have a son who would have a boy named Jesus. Naomi didn't see that. She didn't know it. She, she died in the grave without ever knowing that the Messiah was in her lineage. The King of kings and the Lord of lords could be seen. You could almost have a tinge of Christ right there on Naomi's lap that afternoon. Sitting right there in Naomi's arms was but a brief sign of an eternal redemption. We're not talking about a redemption of a family. We're not talking about redemption of a land. We're talking about the redemption of the debt and the curse of sin. That's the redemption that we're talking about. Jesus is coming. And he would come as the suffering servant, the suffering Obed, who wouldn't just be a provider during old age. He would be a provider for an eternal age. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every single one of us to our own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. See, in a day, much like in the days of the judges, in a day today when every man still does what is right in his own eyes, Christ got pummeled and pinned to a tree so that he might redeem us from sin. And so I want you to listen. If you do not know Jesus Christ, the book of Ruth is for you. 
the book of Ruth is absolutely for you, that there is this, this wonderful, majestic, massive, holy creator. He puts you in your mother's womb. He's the author of your existence. But you know it. I know it intuitively. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We break every commandment that there is. We rebel from this God. We say, I don't want you. And because of that rebellion, because of that, that face-off with God, we're condemned to hell. Hell is real. We're not backing off of that. There is unfortunately, very truly, a destination for every soul. For those who surrender to Jesus Christ, that destination is heaven. Those who do not surrender to Jesus Christ, that destination is hell. But, here's what's wonderful. In the midst of our condemnation, in the midst of this plight, in the midst of all of this rebellion, God sends his own son Jesus, the suffering Obed, the suffering servant, to take your penalty from you. He will take your sin away from you if you repent of your sins. If you say, yes, I am broken. Yes, I am a rebel. I see it, I understand it, and I repent. And I trust in this Jesus. He is the only able redeemer. You see, every other redeemer in this world, every other fake God is like this nameless redeemer in this place. You know, remember what he said? He said, I can't. I can't redeem you. And that's like every other God in this world. No other God can redeem you. No ideology, no good work, nothing can save you except for the able redeemer, Jesus Christ the Lord. So if you believe in him, Give your entire life over to him. Say sayonara to everything that belongs to you and say, I am yours. He will redeem you for life and for the ages. It is better than what you're currently pursuing. It is better. Embrace Christ. Embrace him as Savior and Lord. See, the message of Ruth is the message of the entire Bible. Behold Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who purchased our debts and welcomed us home. That is the story of this book. That is the story of every redeemed life in this room. Behold Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who purchased our debts and welcomed us home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we worship you as holy, but you are separate than us, you are so much higher than us, and yet your desire for intimacy, your desire to be with us, and it is so incredible, it's, not, it's nothing you needed. You are so perfect, you need nothing, and in polar contrast, here we are. And we need everything. We are in so much dire need for you. And so we, we leave this little, little short story 3,000 years ago to say that we see you. That the, things that our, the thing that our hearts need the most right now is just to simply say, Behold, Jesus Christ. Look how beautiful you are. Lord, I pray 
for people to be raised out of death. Help us stop believing lies of our own sufficiencies that we are worth anything apart from you. Oh, how much dignity and value come from our redemption in Jesus Christ. And like Boaz, as those who have faith in the living God, lead us to obedience, Lord. Lead us to humility. Lead us to strength and dignity. Make us salty in the world for your glory. May may the legacy of each one of us on our deathbed be God is great. God is great. Please do that, Lord. Which means humility must run thick here. Please give it to us, Lord. Grant it to us, I pray. Amen. Amen.